2: welcome to the long Forum podcast i'm aaron lammer your co-host on the line max linsky uh evan ratliff is another co-host though he is not here for this intro hello max how are you sir it is uh it's good to see you evan is uh doing his you know investigative reporting thing but aaron you're doing the interview thing who is on the show this week uh, on the show this week, I talked to Alexandra Lang. She is a design and architecture critic. Uh, I enjoyed her work very much at Design Observer. She was at Curbed, and she has a book out now. It's called Meet Me by the Fountain An Inside History of the Mall. It is exactly what it sounds like a deeply researched history of the rise and fall, and dare I say, potential rebirth of American mall industry. Malls are coming back? I uh, don't know we don't we don't give spoilers uh in the <laughs> intro. But um you know I don't know a ton about architecture. I know next to nothing about uh architecture criticism I, as far as I know. She's the first person who we've had on the show who writes about this topic and one of the things I wanted to talk to her about is that generally when you read about architecture you're reading about some ascendant uh prize winning architect. And uh, what she's writing about in terms of the history of the mall is architecture from a very different perspective. So that's uh, that's the interview. We are brought to you, of course, in partnership with Vox, who helped us produce the show. Thanks to everyone at Vox.
1: Now here is Aaron with Alexandra Lang.
2: Welcome to the Long Form Podcast, Alexandra Lang. Thank you. (laughs) You have a new book out. It is about the American mall. I guess it's about, are, are there international malls in it also, or is it only on the American mall?
3: The conclusion is about international malls. And honestly, like I have a lot of international followers who are like, are you writing about malls in Eastern Europe? Are you writing about malls in the UK? Blah, blah. And I was like, you know, I think you should do that book because- I feel comfortable here in the US.
2: <laughs> I do feel like it's difficult. Like a lot of the book is about the competing feelings of like nostalgia and destruction. I don't know if that's an international phenomenon. Like I don't know in Eastern Europe if people have these kinds of deep emotional connections to their malls.
3: They do actually, but each country or region has a really different trajectory in terms of how the malls developed. And in a lot of places they were always more urban and a lot of places they always had more public facilities. So I just feel like you really have to understand the larger like cultural construct of the mall in the individual country. And that's like in the, in the conclusion where I talk about some of that sort of alternate mall history. um, I quote a lot of, you know, people, critics and historians from other countries, because I'm just like, yeah, they get it in a way that I would never get it.
2: So for you, when you're bringing to life uh, malls, where do you find the balance between describing like the physical structure and everything else that goes along with understanding something like a mall?
3: Well, I mean, I think The first thing for me is that I actually find it very easy to describe things. Like I'm just like a fundamentally visually driven person. So describing things comes really naturally. And I also have a very kind of vivid, almost cinematic, I would say, imagination. So reading about these older malls, I feel very able and capable to kind of like put myself into that space and understand what people would have been seeing and what they were wowed by. I mean, I think that's why, I mean, I don't know if it's why I became an architecture critic, but I think that's why um, I'm a good architecture critic, because that's, that's how my mind works. And so the trickier part is to try to get people whose minds don't work that way to, you know, first of all, read architecture criticism at all, and then to like get into the space with me
2: yeah I think I don't have a visual system inside my brain so for someone who to whom this idea is alien what details do you find resonate with people what are what are the ways that you can compress a whole building into a limited word count
3: well I think this is something that I've told my students a lot like the easiest way to get people into an imaginary building, let's say, or, you know, a historic building um, is just to do it as if you were having that pedestrian entrance experience. So to go into a mall, I would say, you know, talk about the parking lot, talk about what the entrance canopy looks like, the pavement under your feet, because in fact, there's so much kind of pavement and floor in a mall and what the material of that is, like makes a huge difference in how you're kind of reading the aesthetic go down that long hall, and then you see a fountain, you know, that's the title of my book. So what does that fountain look like? Is it pretty? Is it sparkly? Is there light coming down? So just to describe that coming in, seeing the kind of main event of the mall, and then going off in whatever direction to the department store, to the food court, you know, to the bookstore, I think is the easiest way. And you can do that for any building. Like you're trying to, you're trying to figure out like, what the architect wanted you to do, and then describe that feeling in like a physical and grounded way for your reader.
2: How do you think about the relationship of the building being a success on its own terms or based on the objectives of the people building it versus your own subjective opinions on whether it's beautiful or not? Like what are the merits on which you are uh,
3: evaluating
2: a, a physical structure?
3: Well, I think for me, the first question is like, is it working? Like, I want to know what the architect thinks, not because I think they're the be all and end all opinion of the building, but just as a kind of baseline. Like, can I understand what they were doing? And then I want to evaluate, is it working on their terms? And then I want to evaluate, is it working for me as a semi ordinary person just walking through it? Like, I, I try to always remind people that, you know, sometimes you're seeing a new building like as a tour with an architect, but more often, and I think it's much better to just, you know, show up one day and go yourself. And it's like, okay, I'm just a regular person going to this mall for the first time, going to this museum for the first time. And like, Is it working for me? Is it hard to open the door? Is there a lot of like security clutter in the front hall that you know the architect didn't want there? But in fact, like that is totally shaping my experience of entering the building, you know, and so on from there. So, I mean, I think beauty is really important, but more and more, I think that is a secondary characteristic to how me and a lot of other architects are evaluating buildings. Like we really want them to function at a deeper level and for more different kinds of people. And I think you just kind of add layers of awareness. Like now, obviously, there's been more talk about how buildings serve people with disabilities. So if you have designed your building with a big, important set of steps at the entrance, and that's clearly the way the architect wants you to enter, that's problematic because a lot of people won't be able to take those steps and are they shunted over to the side? Like, just because I can walk up the steps doesn't mean I shouldn't evaluate the other ways of getting into the building.
2: As you get into more avant-garde and showpiece architecture, do the same kinds of values hold true?
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, like, I think architecture has got to work like that's one of the things that makes it different than art. And sometimes I get really frustrated with artworks that look like architecture, but like don't have to have the same like functional capabilities as architecture. So, yeah, I mean, no matter how on guard you get, if you can't find the entrance to the building, that is a problem. But I also need to note, just because you mentioned the architects' profiles being like the way that most people, I think, encounter architecture in mainstream magazines, I wrote a piece a couple years ago called "Like the End of the Architect Profile," and I don't write architects' profiles anymore because I really think that is a bad way to portray architecture, um, because most architecture is not done by one person, and and it shouldn't be evaluated on a masterwork basis. We shouldn't only be interested in these architects who are already famous doing, you know, like more big name buildings and never think about all the people working for them and never think about the more ordinary architectures that people are more likely to encounter. I mean, that's really one of the reasons I wanted to write about malls, which have in fact been designed by some Prisker prize winning architects, but like people are much more likely to have been to a mall than they are to have necessarily been to an airport or a museum or, you know, all of these other like types of architecture.
2: Thinking of that sort of rejection of the auteur theory of uh, Pritzker winning architecture, this book still does have a lot of biographical detail about the people who built the malls. So when you are going into those histories, what is important about the people who design structures to you and and their personal lives?
3: Yeah. I mean, I definitely thought about that and I talked about it a lot with my book editor at Bloomsbury, Ben Hyman. I mean, he felt like it was really important for readers to have a few people to kind of hang on to. And so... Gruen is a really obvious one, and he has a fairly spectacular biography. I actually struggled a lot with that chapter because I think he's the, let's say, mall maestro that has had the most written and done by it. Like he was the most known figure already. And so I had to kind of pick my way through his memoir and some of the other biographies of him to try to figure out which narrative about him I wanted to tell and kind of which points of emphasis I wanted to make. I mean, I think the privilege of being a critic is that you can pick and choose. Like I would never write a biography of someone because obviously you're still picking and choosing, but you do have to have this whole sweeping chronology and, you know, talk about their childhood and stuff like that. And I don't find myself so interested in that, but like with Gruen, it was interesting to me that he worked on the GM Futurama, which is this very famous, you know, pavilion at the 1939 World's Fair that set out to show the world in 1960. So like, obviously, you know, like from a design point of view, obviously that was a formative experience in his biography. So I feel like I had the option of emphasizing that rather than some other things about him, because I felt like you could draw kind of, a design biography that was more compressed. And I also was at pains to credit his first wife, Elsie Crumick, who did a lot of the original New York City boutiques with him. So like, that's another way to try to complicate this story. Say like, hey, you know, he had a collaborator who was actually a woman on a lot of this early work that made his name. And she's not always mentioned more recently, but, you know, traditionally not always mentioned.
2: Buildings don't necessarily have such a neat beginning, middle, and end. And if they do, it's played out over a 100 years sometimes. So how do you think of structure in terms of how you turn this story into a book?
3: Well... It actually, I mean, this book grew out of um, a few articles that I wrote for Curbed when I was the architecture critic there. Um, And really the first article I wrote about malls for Curbed was in 2018 and it was, the mall isn't really dead, we're just calling it different things now sort of story. So I would say that like my premise from the beginning was like, Yes, there is this huge popular narrative that malls are dead. And a lot of people that I talked to about this book was like, "Oh, are you writing about dead malls?" And I was just like, "You know, <laughs> I would never spend 2 years of my life writing about something that was dead. Like that is just not my attitude. Like that's like that's not a fun book. Like I don't think people I think people want to look at those pictures, but I don't think they want to read like a narrative that ends like in the end like the mall is over." But so my premise was always Some malls are dying, yes, but we in America, you know, people are still designing and building things that look like malls, that act like malls, that have this narrative of malls. So maybe it's time to remind people that there is this much longer mall narrative of malls, that malls have a history, and that malls like haven't always been the same, that like they have periods just like any historical form of architecture. And that there have been a lot of deep thoughts about malls. I mean, I I think part of my narrative was just like, no malls are dead yet, but also it was like malls aren't superficial either, right? They can seem like this commercial space, we associate them with teenagers and brands and all these things that are sort of like bright and colorful and fun and a little bit disposable, but not only is the architecture not disposable, but like those feelings that we have about them aren't disposable either.
0: and those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Terms apply.
1: Support for this podcast comes from SmartWater. Water. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smart Water has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smart Water Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.
2: What were your like research techniques? Like, How do you get into these things that were kind of like, blips in the local paper at the time how do you how do you go about that
3: well there are a lot of great um mostly on blogspot actually there are a lot of great mall blogs that i feel like have done a lot of the research work f- For me, Or at least like the preliminary research. There are also a fair number of videos on YouTube about mall openings, especially, you know, scenes from the mall opening filmed by the local TV station. That's how I know that at, say, Owings Mills, they had this shower of feathers, you know, coming down from the ceiling of the atrium when opened. And and I guess, yeah, like one thing I'm trying to do is like make people feel that excitement to see these as like a civic moment. Because I don't think, you know, malls are that way in our imagination now. And then I did read a lot of articles in local papers. I mean, like one of the blessings of the digital revolution is that I was able to do a lot of the research for this book, you know, at my computer, at home, like via NYPL databases, via like various newspaper databases, these mall blogs, you know, which are basically amateur historians, like all of that was very present and helpful. And like, I I could just get it from my computer.
2: When malls were in their full swing at the, the peak of the American mall, was there a lot of criticism written? Like, were you able to draw on other critics in putting together the book?
3: Yes and no. You know, one of the things I found out was that Jane Jacobs actually went out and reviewed Southdale, Victor Gruen's first indoor mall, you know, as if it was this main event. So, like, that's really fun. Everybody's heard of Jane Jacobs. is like, OK, so Jane Jacobs thought the mall was super important. Um, there's another critic named Grady Clay, who was more of a regional critic, and he also covered malls. But then, like, I would say at the top echelons of criticism there was a lot of negative energy towards malls. Basically, my two greatest like architecture critic heroes, Ada Louise Huxtable and Michael Sorkin, hated malls. And my epigraph is from Ada Louise Huxtable. And it's kind of a joke because it's a very dismissive quote from a story that she wrote in 1976 about malls. So I just put it in there to kind of say like, this is what I'm fighting against. Um, Like, I love these people. They were great critics, but I think they were wrong about like what malls would ultimately come to mean.
2: How did you become a architecture critic? What led you here?
3: So I'm like the third generation in a design family. So I was always like oriented towards design. We had a lot of modern design in my house. That was just like kind of a dialogue that like came very naturally to me. And I started getting interested in architecture when I was like 12 or 13. And I took a class at the local community center. And my mom actually gave me a book of Ada Louise Huxtable's criticism in high school. So I had the idea of a critic in the back of my mind. Um, and then in college, uh, I was like a double major in literature and architecture. And I was an arts editor at the school paper. So I, I was basically, I mean, you can make all of these narratives sound super smooth. Like I, you know, this was destiny, blah, blah. And it it wasn't like that at all, but I was always simultaneously interested in writing and architecture. And when I got out of college, I got a job um, as an editorial assistant at New York Magazine, and that's what really taught me about feature writing, which I sort of do on and off. But I think that my criticism is fairly featurey. Like, I like a scene, I like a walk around, all of these kind of techniques, and that definitely comes from my time working at New York Magazine. After I worked at New York Magazine for about five years, I went back to school and got a PhD in architecture history. And I was still freelancing during that time, you know, for money. And after that, I just started to specialize more in writing for architecture and design publications and to try to kind of narrow my focus so that I would be you know, seen as a specialist. I could write more opinionated things than I had been. But I actually think, you know, <laughs> I so I've been... Working in journalism since 1994, and I've been a freelancer since 1998. So, like, there have been a lot of pivots in that time, and I feel like the most decisive one um, was in 2009 after the recession. Like, all the freelancing just dried up. Like, all of these places that I'd been writing for regularly, like, were like, "No, we're just going to do it in-house." And at that point, I started my own blog on Tumblr, and. Uh, you know, I cringe reading uh, some of the things that I wrote, but it was much more free form. Like I would just write about movies that had a design content. Like I just I let myself try to be a blogger and like get rid of some of the institutional voice that I developed. And that was really good because that really helped me develop my voice and the way that I think that I write now that's distinctive. And then that blog led me to like kind of a paid blogging position at Design Observer, a super influential design blog. And then that led to an opinion column at Dazeen. And then the, that led to the architecture critic job at Curb. So basically like, Internet publishing has been very good to me, like I rarely appear in print, Um, but starting that blog and thinking about how do I want to sound and like letting myself be more casual was really important, I think.
2: You have these concepts in, in architecture and in criticism of what people should do and what they did do. The should is in the public good, it's sustainability. It's, um, you know, public spaces that are accessible to all. And those are all uh, one form of ideal. And then there's different ideals for like the people who are putting up the money for the mall, which are like bringing in customers, selling stuff, not spending too much building the mall. How do you think about those sorts of trade-offs and the difference between what people should do based on certain ideals and like the practical realities of building buildings.
3: I don't actually believe that better materials are always better. I mean, if you look at, okay, if you look at contemporary mall design, there's a lot of marble, a lot of shiny marble and all the malls I like, like the one I talk about in my second chapter, North park has polished concrete floors and white brick walls. And it's so much nicer then these kind of alienating, super shiny, super hard marble spaces like at American Dream and some other you know, malls, like part of Mall of America has been remodeled and it looks very similar. And if you look at photos of those spaces, they all look alike and they are not warm and they are not human in the same way that something like brick and concrete can be. So I think really in all architecture, it's all in the way you deploy the materials. It's not about the expense of the material. The other part of your question, I agree all of those things should be public goods. like The public domain should provide clean bathrooms and air conditioning and like lots of comfortable seating, but it is not doing it. It's certainly not doing it in New York City, where there are no benches in Moynihan Station, um, and it's just not doing it in general. And the malls by and large are. And we have to look at the, like we critics, you know, people who are interested in like the future of architecture and urbanism have to look at the places that people actually like to go and what those places are surviving. Like there's no point in just standing back and only talking about these idealized spaces. I think most critics, like we want to be active. We want to talk about, what people like what they're doing, and one of those spaces is malls.
2: The buildings that that you write about have these long lives that they are evolving. malls are an evolving art form, and h- how do you think about the lifespan uh, of architectural uh stuff and, and and do you feel like there's like an ideal time to be writing about it?
3: Well, the nerdy term for it is post-occupancy review. (laughs) 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 um, But yeah, I mean... Because of the way the media cycle is, like most mainstream media only wants to hear about a building the minute it's opened. It's kind of like those architect profiles, like architects get profiled when a big skyscraper is about to open in a major city, even if that's not their most interesting work. Um, And so like a new building gets profiled the minute it opens, when in fact we have the least amount of information about it from a kind of humanist point of view. So there have been various experiments over the years. Actually, Wittold Rybczynski for a while was writing this column for Architect Magazine, where he would go back and look at a building, you know, like 10 years after it had opened. And I thought that was great. Like, you know, all of us would be down for that. But that's not what editors want. You know, there's always like a little bit of market forces at work. The interesting thing for malls was that often when I was trying to research a new mall, like the best first source of information was actually Wikipedia because Wikipedia stays up to date. So if I was trying to figure out like how many different owners a mall had had or how many times it had been added onto, it was the Wikipedia that would then link me to those local paper articles about all the changes in the mall. And, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of used historical research for was to establish what the mall looked like at the beginning. But then sometimes the ways a place like the Mall of America has changed, like what you're actually seeing is fashion imprinting itself on the architecture of the mall. And because the mall sells fashion, I think it's honestly easier to talk about the changing looks of a mall than it is to talk about the changing looks of some other building types.
1: support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a smart water alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.
2: If you zoomed out on America, or really most countries, and you looked at like where all the wealth is, it's mostly in real estate. And yet, there aren't a ton of people who write about the thing that most of our money is in, which is in buildings, basically. Why do you think that is? Why are we not more interested in a society and this thing that we're perfectly willing to put our entire net worths into?
3: Well, I mean, there's a lot of real estate writing, but it's like mostly about the money part of it. And, you know, I don't think, you know, the people that are making the money are that interested in criticism. I mean, the, the big mall companies wouldn't talk to me for this book. Like, I read a lot of articles, I read lots of business journalism where they did talk to them, and I just kind of used my own alternate research techniques. But I I feel like that's the attitude a lot of times. Like they don't need me and, you know, twerpy little people like me writing about them. So why would they contribute, like agree to interviews, et cetera? Like it's not necessary. But I also think, I mean, I don't know why, why don't more people read architecture criticism like this? This is like something that I struggle with all the time. Cause it's like, I think I'm entertaining. Like I am like very connected to the world. Like I think if you read my stuff, you'll get it. But I feel like there's just this sense that architecture criticism is boring. And I don't know who gave people that sense, but there's just kind of a barrier not, I think, to the actual material, but just to even bothering to read it. But I don't, I mean, for me, like, I really like to write about things that, like, I can hold an experience. Like I said earlier, like, I'm not that interested in biography, but I am very interested in the biography of an object. And again, like you know, this is something my editor and I had a lot of back and forth about, like he wanted me to write more about people. And I'm like, but I love objects, like I feel about the objects, I think how most people feel about people. So like, what I'm always trying to do is kind of communicate that enthusiasm and that understanding to my reader, because these objects really have a lot of speaking to do. And I think ultimately, it's easier to connect if people have their own physical experiences, and the, the objects, I mean, the, the best example of this is my last book was called The Design of Childhood. And it was about all the ways in which design interacts with children's lives, especially like in the first 12 years. And the most popular chapter of that book is on playgrounds. And I think it's because everyone's been to a playground, you've seen a playground. So then I think that kind of softens you up to be willing to like let me tell you about the whole history of playgrounds. I mean, I, I feel like that's a great analogy for the mall book. It's like you've been to a mall, but did you know that like malls have this whole complicated history, that they have periods, that they have actually multiple innovators? Like I feel like you should want to know about that.
2: <laughs> when you're writing about a niche that's like really, really alive and present for you, but for other people, they're like, uh tell me the stories of the people behind it, or why is that interesting? Like, how do you sell other people on writing about this thing that like isn't part of the general magazine and lit writing cycle?
3: Well, do you want to know what I led my book proposal for this book with? Please, please. Stranger Things. There you go. <laughs> that, that's how you sell it. I'm like, sorry, but that's how you sell it. You say, I'm interested in this thing. Like, I think that I have pretty good kind of cultural antenna and news judgment. I think other people are interested in malls. Like we're out of place with malls, but like, how do I prove to book editors that are again, you know, general interest um, that malls are interesting. I'm like, what's like the biggest TV hit of this year. And like, where is it set? And like, when were the Duffer brothers born? Oh, like that's my target audience. Like, 80s babies like the Duffer brothers who like want to go back to this place where they discovered the mall, where it was this place of freedom. You know, there's that whole great fashion sequence where, you know, Eleven gets a makeover. Like that is a classic 80s, 90s movie scene that they've put in this show that came out this year or, you know, the year I was writing my book proposal. So yeah, I basically used other pop culture, other more popular pop culture as proof it's
2: it's interesting like i was asking when the ideal time to write about something is and i feel like it is the right time to write about malls it's not because of stranger things but it's almost like it being malls time is working on the same like pop cultural like are we in a like 1980s like cultural cycle right now is, is is that the right amount of time
3: okay yes that is absolutely what's happening and like Yes. <laughs>
2: so what's next? Like what would, what would the next next thing that we're going to pass and the Canal of Time?
3: Mm. I
2: guess the 90s.
3: Yeah, but the 90s is bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the 90s is really problematic. Um well, for architecture, like the 90s is the architecture that a lot of architecture firms suppress on their website. So what do I think is next? I mean, probably like millennium y2k nostalgia i don't know exactly what that's going to look like i was i was already an adult with my own taste at that time so it's a little different like for me like i went through the 80s malls as you know a a teenager and teen just kind of experiencing it without the layer of kind of critical distance so i'd say that where is where it is i mean Like one of the things that flagged me that like the 80s was now history was not just Stranger Things, but also looking at what people were interested in in terms of architecture history, like where the academics were doing research. Because when I wrote my dissertation in the early 2000s, it was about post-war architecture. And that was still like a growing field. But at this point, like post-war architecture is over, like people have been over and over and over it. And I was seeing many more like dissertations and publications writing about the seventies and eighties, you know, postmodernism was back. So that, you know, like it happens differently in every field, but it can be an indicator of just like that we are as a culture ready to look at something through the lens of history.
2: What's next for you? Do you have uh, projects already <laughs> planned? I guess it's unfair. Your book came out this week. I should give you like at least six months before I ask you to answer that question.
3: Yeah, I'm not one of those magical people that has already sold their next book. I think what I'm interested in right now is doing some work that is not writing a giant book and maybe not even writing criticism. Like one of the projects that I took up this year, kind of like while I was in book edits, was I'm editorial advisor to a podcast about women architects called New Angle Voice. And we launched our first season this spring, and it's done really well. We have like 30,000 downloads um, of these profiles of five deceased women architects, which I think is pretty amazing. So we'd really like to do a second season of that. So that's something I'll be working on in the fall. I'm going to be teaching next spring um, a criticism class. So yeah, I'm trying to kind of skip around for projects that use a different energy than writing a book. And I'm hoping by doing that, that some new ideas about my next book will start to germinate.
2: Well, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the long form Podcast. Uh, I'm your co-host, Aaron Lammer. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Jackie Sajiko. Thanks to our intern, Susan Peterson. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. Oh, thanks to my guest, Alexandra Lang. Uh, Thanks to you for listening. If uh, you're enjoying the show, consider uh, reviewing and uh, rating it. That seems like a good thing to do. We'll be back next week.